Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Welcome to another edition of Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me is co-host, Johan Oberg. Johan, what's going on this week? Great to be back again, Chris. Another week, another interesting episode, continuing our talks around energy, and, and in this case, a little bit of sustainability. But it's uh, interesting to see. You know, We tend to always talk about the weather, but let's skip that one. But it's really interesting now to see the Europeans coming back to business. You know, we've talked about our long holidays and taking air, you know, according to Americans and you guys, six weeks off, but we don't. But now we're back and we're full speed ahead. So it's been an um, interesting week and uh, we're back in business. I'm excited to have people back. Obviously, my day job, I work in a commercial role. So to have people to actually call and talk to in Europe <laughs> has been fantastic because you know for a while the continent just shuts down. But it's great to have people back. Uh, I, I'm curious about your opening statement. I'm sure you didn't mean this, but what is a little bit of sustainability? No, but we, we talked about sustainability on the show before. You talked about, okay, is this a, a kind of a micro trend? Is it just a buzzword? Are we using it? Uh, it I think it's taking over more and more and more. Uh, we talked about CO2 20 years ago. Sustainability is not only driven by the companies, it's driven by the investments, it's driven by the corporates. And I think it, today we'll see a little bit of a mix of both. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Our guest today brings a wealth of knowledge of what, what's out there in the industry. I mean, she has seen what's coming. I mean, one of the reasons I'm excited to have someone in the investor space or in the front end space is people are pitching them. They're, they're telling them what they want to do and, and they'll see the innovation probably before the industry will. So it's kind of exciting to see if, if she's as optimistic as we are about what's coming down the pipe. That, that's what I'm hoping to get out of this. And then I'm also hoping to hear about their business because it's it's a uniquely positioned spot in the industry. And I'd love to hear about how they're doing what they're doing. No, I agree. And, I, and also, what, what are the companies that are out there? Maybe not the specific one, but definitely the trends. It was quite interesting coming back to, to my native country in Sweden. We had a big state visit this week from the German uh, president. And what was really interesting is him and the king did the, the – usual roadshow that they always do visiting a large, large amount of companies. But the key trend this time was they were all sustainable. They were all talking about the new energy landscape. So Scania, the big truck company, yes, they're going electric. Northvolt with their batteries, yes, they were there. We talked about a number of the ones, even H2 Green Steel, which is another thing in terms of this one. So it, the whole state visit and the corporate direction around this was around sustainability. So really, really interesting. But that was not the core of today. So I think it's time to get our guest on board, get her involved. So with uh, 
further ado, and maybe apologies for my pronunciation, but welcome to the show, Amy Francetic uh, from Buoyant. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And you pronounced my name perfectly. Thank you, <laughs> Johan. Thank you. Um, you know, what you just said about Sweden, I had a call this morning with um, a Swedish investor and they basically said sustainability is table stakes now for anybody raising capital in the PE world or the venture world. So they said that's such a requirement um, throughout the Nordic region. And I couldn't agree more. And, you know, Europe has been leading the way on all things sustainability and the U.S. is hopefully going to catch up. Um, and we've got some good federal leadership to um, to put in place some excellent, you know, policy tailwinds so we can go a little faster. But there's terrific leadership already um, throughout Europe on these issues. So I've starting with a question. So you talked about sustainability being a part of an investment portfolio strategy. What does that mean to your investors? So you're out raising a fund or if you're out raising funds and you say, hey, we got the sustainable fund. What is meaningful about that? What is the word a buzzword these days? Or is there a definition that you can stand behind that's validated and proven? Well, it certainly is a buzzword. That is for sure. And I think, you know, this started a few years ago when the investors started to ask their um, large asset managers to um, measure what kind of carbon impact they had in their businesses and to expose some of the investments that might be more carbon intensive. Because even though a lot of folks were um, pledging to do better and to identify sustainable investments, they still had some pretty deep holdings in heavy emissions in, you know, um, um, oil and gas and coal plants and steel um, companies and, and cement companies, some of the folks that are the largest contributors to climate change. And so there was a, a call for greater disclosure. And this is starting to happen in the U.S. and they're taking the lead from Europe. So um, the task force for climate related financial disclosures really gained strength and momentum from a lot of the leading financiers around the world, but really anchored throughout Europe. And now the Biden administration has pledged to adopt some of those same guidelines to require U.S. investors to identify climate risk in their holdings and to expose that risk, to, to give visibility to their investors about that risk. And then when they make pledges, you know, that they have a um, a sustainable fund or an ESG focused fund, then to make very specific promises about what that will include and what that won't include. And then a lot of this has come from the LP, the individual, the institutional investor community, because they're getting a lot of this pressure as well from their, their funders. Some of those funders are universities. Some of those funders are sovereign wealth funds that are really looking to, you know, to have greater visibility because this is part of their overall mission and goal. So we're excited to see that some of the legislation will require this disclosure to be a little bit more clear and a little bit more honest. Um, and it won't be good enough just to omit things. They're going to want to be looking for investments that not only deliver impact, but also really deliver um, financial performance tied to those sustainable goals. And so we're super excited about that as well, because we certainly think as an investor in the category, by making investments in these companies that are helping with climate change adaptation or mitigation, 
That's the thesis of my fund of Buoyant Ventures. We're investing in digital solutions for climate change. So mostly software, some hardware that either helps reduce emissions or helps us adapt to climate change. And we're doing that because we think it's going to be financially successful. So we're not doing it to just make ourselves feel better. We're doing it because it's going to deliver real financial benefits to folks over the years. So I think you went where, where I think the, the logical step would be is who we are. You started to, to give a little bit of Buoyant Ventures, and I was just too excited to get into the topic, and I just dove right in. But I, I think your business is pretty impressive in and of itself. So maybe we should step back and tell us what Buoyant Ventures is and who you are. Sure, sure. So um, so we're a new fund, a venture fund. Um, I'm actually in Chicago, Illinois. My partner, Allison Myers, is in Denver. So we're 100% female-owned. Um, and we are investing in, as I mentioned, digital climate solutions. Basically, we have the point of view that we have a lot of the technologies today to really address climate change, and we need to get them in the market today. We need to invest in these young, high-growth companies that have solutions that can be delivered today. We completely applaud the funders that are working on potentially very impactful ways to suck carbon out of the air or to reduce the carbon impacts of, say, some of the heavy emitters that I mentioned. But those are very long duration development cycles, and they require hundreds of millions of dollars to scale. We're investing in companies that have um, solutions that are available in market today and that will take tens of millions of dollars to scale up. Um, And these could be, you know, companies that are um, we're looking really across the energy, agriculture, built environment and transportation sectors. And one of the areas that we're trying to be specialists at is this um, climate risk intelligence. And so these are folks that are using data to drive some kind of decision making that will help reduce emissions or help improve adaptation They tend to be software companies for the most part. In some cases, they're using hardware to collect unique data to inform their software solution. And there's also a lot of companies that are financially um, coming up with new financial solutions, new insurance products, new ways to measure risk in financial portfolios, um, new ways to make infrastructure more resilient, um, ways to measure the cost and the return on those investments to address the risks that they have. So it's it's. It's, it's kind of like a, a lens of looking at all these great data companies and what they can do to help um, reduce emissions and um, help us adapt to climate change. So, so when, when looking for these companies, literally, if we break it down to two, one is how do you find them, which is one, the first one. There's a number of them out there. So wh- where are they? Where do they find them? And also, secondly, the background of these companies, where do they come from? Is it mainly coming out of the energy industry, or is it now coming more also convergence from maybe the digital uh, side, which not have the energy background? W- w- do you see any kind of correlation there? They're um, honestly both of what you said for sure, Johan. They're coming from um, so a lot of what's exciting is a lot of folks that have gotten advanced degrees in climate-related fields, whether that's a PhD in climate science or folks that maybe would have traditionally found their career path, say, at one of the federal agencies, are now joining climate startups. So that's a really great thing is all these great, you know, people that got doctorates in climate or glaciers, we 
uh, just put in a term sheet actually for a European company. And one of the founders has a PhD in glaciers. So, you know, he's like, <laughs> so these awesome scientists that had been ringing the alarm bells, you know, for um, decades are now starting to start companies, which is terrific. Um, in other cases, they might be folks that um, are coming traditionally from the software world because a lot of these technologies are um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics, and that is evolving out of, you know, traditional software industries. In other cases, they might be coming from the financial industry. So they might be um, like we've been seeing a lot of great innovation of folks that came from either um, the um, sort of stock and sort of hedge fund worlds or sort of debt worlds where, you know, risk measurement and underwriting be, or the insurance worlds. A lot of really cool innovation coming out of the insurance industry as well. So insure tech in this space is very strong. And so folks that are used to consuming large amounts of data to sort of drive some kind of benefit or unique business angle are starting to turn their attention to climate. And, and insurance is a really important um, category because they're on the front lines. You know, when you see the floods that happened in Germany, the floods that happened here in the States, um, just very recently, Hurricane Ida and, you know, eight inches of rain falling in a few hours in New Jersey and New York. And these are this is generating tremendous losses for businesses and, and um, individuals. And so the insurance companies are really trying to figure out, OK, our old underwriting models don't work. What do we how do we adjust that for the future for climate and what kind of insurance solutions can we sell people that are going to help them recover? So I think it's quite interesting. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned that the, the, uh, the one of the companies that you were working with, or at least one of the contacts on glaciers. And what would you would you say that there's a different kind of characters in these new companies compared maybe to to others? Are they motivated by difference? Are they coming from different, or is it still just, is it still kind of equal to to other kind of investments or? No, they're, they want to make a difference and they want to make a difference now, you know, and this is something that I, so I've been in this space. I kind of came to my personal epiphany. Um, I counted it sort of like 2005, 2006. So many years ago, I've been at this for a while, <laughs> um, but um, I just, I actually had a health scare in my life and, and, and fortunately recovered from that and then quickly had two, two kids and decided that I had been working in the high tech industry before and I wanted to take my attention and work on climate solutions because the natural world was so important to me personally, to my health, to my spirituality, you know, my mental health that I wanted to preserve it. And I didn't like what I was seeing happening. And I was listening to what the scientists were saying. I'm, I'm a big science junkie. I'm not a scientist, but I love hanging out with scientists. I love reading about science. I love, I respect them. I, I, you know, I want to, you know, live my life kind of like being, paying attention to the, you know, the facts. And, um, and even as we're seeing with, you know, COVID and what's just happened, like, you know, you got to listen to the scientists. Um, but anyway, so that was an epiphany that I had um, a number of years ago and determined to uh, commit the rest of my life to working on climate solutions. And um, and there's a lot of people that were having that same epiphany at the same time. And then there's a lot of um, students that are graduating now, um, taking classes or majoring in or getting doctorates in um, sustainability, energy, climate, 
because I think they just feel so strongly and so passionately that something has to be done. And frankly, they feel so let down by the leadership around the world. Um, and when you hear, you know, Greta Thunberg and some of her, you know, we have failed. The, the, the leadership, the adult leadership has failed the next generation on these issues. And so a lot of um, young folks are, you know, focusing on this at the university, are looking for jobs in this field. There's a lot of great talent coming graduating every year. And so I think that when you, so to go back to your original question, it's sort of a long winding answer to your question about like, why are folks doing this? They're doing it because they really deeply care and they want to have purpose in their work and they want to be working on solutions. And then there's probably a good number of them that are, that see dollar signs too. You know, they see, wow, this is, I can work on something that really makes a difference. That's good for the world. And I can make a lot of money at this because this is going in, this is, there's going to be great financial upside in coming up with solutions. Well, I'm glad you had the epiphany because that means you're out raising a fund to help people invest in this. I, I was going to tell, if you hadn't gotten to the financial upside, I, I was going to say that no matter how altruistic you are, that the more I spend time talking to people that are doing startups and interesting things to get to a sustainable future or a net zero um, I can't help but think of the the upside. I, I came from a technology background and I lived through the technology boom. And, and we didn't have a forced deadline with, with the, the planet and the scientists saying, if you don't do things, they won't do that. So imagine compressing that tech cycle to shorter. There's so many interesting companies out there. But my question to you is, do you invest in the people or the technology? So you're an early stage investor, I think, right? So you go there. Are you looking more at what they have on the truck today or what the potential the individuals that make up that team bring? Well, you know, I mean, it's it. So I don't want to take a lot of technology risk, as I mentioned, because I want these solutions to be able to go into market right away. So it's mostly a speed and scale issue, right? We're looking for solutions that can be deployed today and that can be scaled up rather quickly and with with not, you know, um, an enormous amount of capital. Um, there are folks that are working on these long horizon solutions. They may have a, a more capital to deploy. They may have a longer time cycle on their funds. So they're able to wait for things to develop over sort of 10, 20 years. But we want really things that can really go to market and, and, and have an impact in the next call it, you know, three to five years is what we're looking for so that we can invest our money now and then exit in the sort of, you know, five to seven year time frame. Um, but that means that you've got to have great leadership too. So we um, we will we care a lot about the solution and that it is um, a viable solution that it can compete. Um, we will do some diligence and some work on the technology. We'll call. We'd like it if they have customers, so we can talk to the customers and hear what they like and they don't like about it. We also like. Um, to know that the company is very customer focused. And so sometimes what we'll do is we'll introduce some of these companies to potential customers before we decide whether to make an investment. And then we'll listen to listen in on those conversations. And we always learn something about what the customer wants and needs. But then we also get to see how well the CEO or founder um, here's the customer, interacts with the customer. Are they really listening to the customer? Because what you always have um, at the, with these early stage companies are folks that have fallen in love with their solution and they may not 
understand what headwinds or even really truly what problem it's solving in the marketplace. They may think it's solving one problem over here, but the real problem is over there. So they might need to make some adjustments to the solution in order to solve that problem. And it's really important for them to be customer focused. And so that's something that we try to assess in the leadership um, before we make um, an investment decision. And Chris, you just asked the average age of our CEOs. Um, so we, you know, I would say the average age is in the, the sort of call it mid thirties. So not, not, not really, really young, you know, not super young folks. Um, that's kind of a little bit of a, a startup myth, you know, that all of these amazing CEOs are like 25 or 21 or didn't go to college. I mean, that certainly happens. And there's lots of good examples of Mark Zuckerberg and other people, um, Sergey Brin and others that came, you know, left Stanford to go create their companies. But for the most part, these are folks that are um, probably starting a company after they've had some really relevant experience in the workforce, or maybe they have um, started um, a company after failing, which is honestly really great. You know, if you started a company and you failed and now you're um, and you, as long as you didn't do something illegal or fraudulent or evil, you know, in that course of that failure, it certainly made you a better, more experienced CEO so that when you take another run at it, um, you're going to be a little bit, you're going to be smarter. You're going to know where some of the, the potholes are. You're going to know where some of the landmines are. And, um, and if you can hire a team that maybe worked with you before so that you can bring to the company some momentum from a hiring standpoint, um, and maybe those are people that you worked with in the past. So I would say that that's something that you, you have um, in your sort of late 20s, early 30s, more often than not. Um, and not to say that we're ageist about this at all, or, you know, a lot of great CEOs that are also hired to work alongside founders um, to lead a company who have more um, experience, some, some more business experience. So folks that are older that are brought in a lot of times after a larger round of funding so that they can bring their management skills to the company and they can bring some of maybe their their um, their relationships um, from a sales standpoint to the company that they have you know worked really hard to earn uh, over their their decades of experience. So in terms of the people, which is obviously an important part, as you mentioned, um, not being an investor myself uh, with limited experience of, of a venture fund, what is there a specific and especially on climate focus? Otherwise, I, return on the investment, I can understand, but. Are there specific kind of high level criteria when you when you assess a specific company? You know, these are the top three, top five things that need to be kicked in order for them to qualify into the perspective of of this, because it's not just a financial return on this one. It's actually also the climate part of it. So is there any in a way to say, OK, this is the very high level assessment. This is kind of necessity. Otherwise, we'll walk away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So we do, we, we worked um, to create, um, call it an impact methodology that we use to assess all the investments. So when we find a company, we will sort of run it through our impact methodology and we have committed to our fund to deliver impact along the lines of seven of the UN sustainable development goals. And so we're looking for companies that will help us deliver that impact. And then we will um, understand sort of where it fits and every company is different. You know, they're, they're not one size fits all like some company, one investment that we have. So I can talk about a few couple of examples to give this to illustrate this. But one company that we invested in last year is called Raptor Maps. 
and they actually spun out of MIT. Um, Nikhil and Eddie are the founders there, and they're using machine learning software to analyze drone footage that is captured by flying over large-scale solar uh, systems, um, utility-scale solar arrays, and they analyze those systems and deliver suggestions back given the phone, the, the drone footage to make suggestions for improving the output from the solar panels. So it might be suggestions for cleaning, vegetation management to manage shading, repairs. They have thermal sensors on these um, drones that can understand sort of which panels uh, might need repairs. And then those improvements can actually uh um, reduce the cost of the solar power, produce more power, so that ultimately it's optimizing those solar panels for better output. So we we count that on the mitigation standpoint. So they're helping to reduce the impacts of of climate change because there are more solar energy is going to be um, produced as a result of Raptor Maps's intervention with their customers. And then we measure that. You know, how, we have a calculation for that in their case of how does that compute to how much carbon can be saved based upon how much additional solar power um, is created based upon their, their customers using their solution. So that's one example, and that's in the sort of climate um, mitigation category. On the adaptation side, it's a little bit harder to measure, um, and there are not as many standard um, guidelines on this. There are starting to become some better guidance on climate adaptation. But um, one company that we invested in um, that we are going to be announcing soon is a company called Storm Sensor, and they put sensors inside sewers, and then they have a software platform that gets um, every five minute information from those sensors and helps people that are managing the water infrastructure make better decisions, especially during big storm events on how to adjust their management of the water infrastructure to avoid urban flooding and also to avoid releasing sewage into the waterways, which happens a lot. I don't know how often this happens in um, Europe, but it happens a lot in the U.S. and some of the older combined stormwater sewer systems. When it rains a lot, they start to they, they get overwhelmed and they release sewage into the lakes and rivers, which is really obviously a bad thing. And when you see urban flooding, um, people don't realize that a lot of that is sewage mixed in with all the rainwater. So you definitely don't want to go paddling around in it, you know, and and walking through it if you can help. Um, you can help it. So um, so their solution will help, you know, reduce urban flooding. Um, and then the other thing that is really good about their solution is um, at the coast, a lot of what's happening with the seas rising is the seawater is starting to infiltrate the city water infrastructure. So the pipes under the cities on the coast are full of seawater. So it doesn't take very much in a rain event. It doesn't even have to be a big storm for there to be floods because there's there, there's seawater in those pipes. And that's a big problem um, for a lot of the cities on the coast. So they can give you better visibility into what's happening in those pipes under the, under the um, city. And that's in the climate change adaptation category. So the more cities that are deployed, the more people and populations that they cover, the, the better um, the impact can be around reducing urban flooding. And then the more, you know, in some cases, these are loss of lives, you know, in certain instances, so we can measure kind of like safety and health impacts, as well as environmental benefits of using their solution. That's pretty cool. I, I, I see the internet of things. I, I know that Johan and I are going to be talking to a company that uses sensors coming up to, to manage the gas networks and things. So that, that, that's a pretty exciting use of the technology. 
Your, your first example, coincidentally, lines up to a guest we're having on that has a similar concept. They have a drone company that uses AI to monitor solar fields or a company out of uh, Denver. And that leads me to wonder, how crowded are the space? How many is similar? I mean, it's very similar on paper. I'm sure they're all the devil's always in the detail. But how crowded are the spaces? How many of these ideas are coming across your desk that, you know, if you, if you see 100 pitches, how many of those are similar? And would you fund multiple competing because the industry is so big and growth is so big, there's room for a lot of competition. Would you fund things in your portfolio that are similar? Um, well, we, would, we would definitely try not to fund direct competitors. And, you know, that is um, always our intent um, because we're trying, we don't want them to be competing with each other for customer contracts because what we're trying to do is help them win those customer contracts. So we would hate to have them feel, have them feel like we were helping one over the other. Um, sometimes what happens is they move into each other's space over time, you know, so like you start out with one kind of approach and then they start to cross over. So it's not always possible to co- completely avoid that, but we wouldn't start from the beginning investing in direct competitors. Um, and I think that the you ask about how crowded the space is, um, it's getting more crowded, that's for sure. So like, you know, um, the and there's getting to be some consolidation and some of these bigger investors are coming in. So like the hedge funds are coming in to do venture capital and they're sort of anointing winners by giving them very large sums of money. You're hearing about, um, you know, Tiger Global and Co2 and, and, and Vista and some of the other investors starting to move into the venture space and writing very, very large checks. And they're, um, you know, in, in that case, that does give a whoever has got the most capital can now go on sort of a buying spree and kind of, you know, in, in certain cases, purchase competitors that might be um, complementary to them or will help them go faster and scale up faster. And so, you know, we are I mean, I guess our bet is that we see this space, you know, expanding and increasing in value. So even if we're making a bet in one area and there may be multiple players that we're expecting that even in the course of the the growth of the sector and consolidation happening, that it will still deliver a venture return for our investors because of that overall growth. So it is really hard to know like who's going to win, especially at the early stage. That's where you're really kind of you know, doing your best to assess the technology and then really trying to understand if these leaders and these founders have what it will take to really um, to grow grow quickly because you have to go fast. You know, it's hard to go fast. There's lots of missteps. You know, hiring is really challenging now um, in the U.S. There's a very tight job market. Uh, people, you know, are um, very picky about where they want to work. They want to work at companies that care about employee benefits. They want to work at companies that have you know great upside, but they also care about the culture of these companies, and so. That's also something, um, one of the things that we do as a fund, in addition to measuring climate impact, um, we also care about measuring diversity and inclusion. So we're, um, my partner Alice and I, we're 100% female owned, and we really um, insist that when a company decides to um, accept our capital, that they make a commitment to implementing a diversity and inclusion policy to considering diverse um, talent for their their job openings to expand and sort of you know, cast a wider net to bring in folks outside of their immediate network so that they can start to build a really diverse team. And that 
is important, you know, to us because we have a, you know, we think diversity drives alpha, drives better outcomes. There's a lot of great data to support that. Um, but the other thing is it's very, it makes it more attractive to folks to join the company too. They want to, they want to work with diverse um, co-workers and they, it's a, it's an important thing to communicate from a value system to the potential recruits. Which, uh, which I think it's um, wonderful. And the whole diversity is, is, is a topic of its own. I think we could, we can dwell down into that in, in many ways. One thing that was curious, you, you mentioned uh, diversity, of course, you mentioned go fast, you mentioned culture. A lot of these companies that you're funding are energy companies, as we said, moving into an industry where they probably need to work with some of the, let's say, the, the legacy companies uh, in one way or the other. And with my experience and may, many with us, maybe diversity, uh, culture and go fast is not the, the, the first words you think about in, in the legacy industry. Yeah. So how do you see how, how do you see the, the, the combination here where, where where they actually eventually need to work uh, and, and solving the problems together in one way or the other? No, that's really true, Johan. I mean, they, they do need to usually deliver their solution by going in partnership with one of the, and those are their customers. So their customers could be those very large, um, you know, corporations or institutions or, you know, government agencies in some cases. And so they're very entrenched and, um, and they're, they're, you know, I think a lot of the learning I would say from call it clean tech 1.0, you know, in the, um, the, the 2000s, the 2007 to 2010 time period was the funding of a lot of solutions um, that, were intended to disrupt the status quo and how hard it is to completely disrupt the status status quo in this case where you're really needing to deliver your solution in partnership with them. And so you um, you have to kind of figure out like how to work with them, not how to blow them up or go around them, whether that's a utility company or a big bank, you know, or a leading corporation or, you know, um, so I think that's so that's number one is knowing how to work with with the incumbents. Number two, um, to your point, what's interesting? So fifteen hundred corporations have made net zero decarbonization pledges, and in order to meet those pledges, they are oftentimes um, trying to implement changes in their existing businesses, so reducing the climate impacts and carbon emissions of their core business. You know, and then uh, as well as their supply chain and this commitment to working with diverse companies as part of their suppliers is is a definitely a growing trend. So um, we just submitted a term sheet to a company that is one of the leading um, um, organizers of a network of they've got 70,000 suppliers around the world that sell to big brands and retailers. And they have had them fill out these very long questionnaires to try to um, measure and rate their ESG um, qualities so that these big companies can choose folks that will help them meet their goals, will help them meet their ESG goals or help them meet their, their decarbonization goals. And the companies, they do a lot of this compare and contrast between the different suppliers in an anonymous way, um, as well as um, when the paying customer may, might be the big retailer can come in and, and then see specifically who these folks are. But they can kind of show you as a supplier. So if you are, you know, you work and you make 
um, you know, uh, pajamas. Uh, so you, you make pajamas that you can see like compared to other pajama makers, how well do you rank and rate on these different metrics? And then this young company that we submitted the term sheet to will help you make, um, will make some suggestions to you to help improve your score. So you'll be even more attractive to those large corporate buyers of your solution. And so, yes, it's true that those large corporations probably are not leaders in these things, but they are certainly now, um, they have a preference for this. They are looking to work with vendors that will deliver, that have these qualities that, that rate highly from an environmental and social and governance standpoint, and that by working with them will help the corporation meet their own ambitious goals around ESG or decarbonization. I think that that's important, right? It was, we've, you and I have talked to a number of companies and we, we've talked to a number of startups focused on ESG and what it really means that, that it's not just talk, that what it's really there. Um, I, I guess changing tax a little bit, what, what I'd love to hear about is what kind of things are you seeing in the market? You gave us some examples of things that you funded in the past. Um, are you bullish about where we're headed? Are you are you seeing a lot of activity come in with exciting ideas that are actually, as you say, near-term wins? So understanding that you're going into a gray field, you don't have a green field, you can't blow up the world and start again. We've got to deal with what we've got. What kind of things are you seeing or what can you share with the audience? Because to me, that's what's exciting. I mean, I, I see some really ambitious goals for 2030 and out. I see trillions of dollars getting pumped that way. We've had guests come on and tell us we're still about $90 trillion short of the projects needed to hit net zero. So is the technology and stuff really going to get us there? Are you seeing a lot of exciting things? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's, it's going to require a lot of different kinds of solutions to, to get us there. It's going to require a lot of political will and the mobilization of trillions of dollars of capital for sure. There is no one area to focus on. Like that's the challenging thing about this is what a sophisticated patchwork of technologies is required. So, um, you know, we are um, a couple of areas that we're bullish on. So just to talk about this, like what, where we see tremendous upside, um, the natural carbon sinks. You know, so natural ways to capture carbon in um, forests, in regenerative agriculture, in the oceans, um, as opposed to, um, and I know a lot of people believe that we have to look at some of the heavy um, equipment and um, more uh, mechanical ways to suck carbon out of the air. And there are some folks that are pioneering some solutions there, but they are terribly costly and they won't really scale up without some serious government subsidy. However, natural carbon sinks are not very costly and they do have an impact immediately and they don't require invention. <laughs> you know, so, so planting trees and doing regenerative agriculture and spreading limestone over fields and improving the carbon sink qualities of the ocean these are all things that we can do today and improve and make an impact in today. And from our perspective and our thesis, um, the reason we're excited about that is digital technologies are really critical to validating that that carbon is being sunk and that creating the marketplace for what we're calling those offsets. So when someone makes a decarbonization pledge, they want to purchase some offsets to help them meet their goal because they've now made all these adjustments in their own business. They're asking their suppliers to be 
um, more um, ESG um, favorable and to and to reduce carbon in their own operations so that they can get into sort of the their supply chain, but then they're still going to purchase offsets. So it's really important for digital technologies to validate those offsets, to, to measure, validate, certify them, to make sure we're not double counting them, to make sure that they're high quality. Because if we see, we see that there's going to be billions of dollars flowing into the offset market, and if they are not high quality offsets, then they won't deliver the result that we're all counting on, you know? So you have to make sure that if someone's doing regenerative ag practices, that the soil is actually sinking a certain amount of carbon in order for the offset that they sell to be worth anything. So there's a lot of room for digital technologies to play in that market and to prevent fraud um, or to prevent, um, you know, people from um, even not even fraud, just making mistakes, you know, and how they do this. So that's a really, really important area of innovation. And that will um, buy us time for the great scientists to come up with some hopefully cost effective ways to suck carbon out of the air. But it's going to take a long time for those solutions to scale up and they're not cost effective today. So they will require a heavy subsidy. So what kind of digital technology specifically? So are you talking about like verifying like blockchain type thing or are there are there some other innovative things that you can share that that might show that you know you you planted more trees or you did xyz yeah 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 so we published some research on this um there are some companies that are using um soil testing so that so that's actually one of the most concrete maybe most um reliable ways is you can actually sample the soil so there are companies that are sampling the soil um, there are companies that are using satellite imagery to um, uh, to analyze forests. So this is another big area. So you've heard about a company called Pachma, um, and there's others that are in this category that uh, use satellite imagery to analyze forests to understand whether or not the you know what are the what is the age and the growth of the trees that are being planted. It monitors monitors those plantings over time so that we can make sure that. If people are selling offsets related to planting trees, that those trees are not being cut down, you know, and that they're growing and that they're delivering a certain amount of carbon benefits. And they're doing that with satellite footage. So satellite imagery is really an important, it's an important technology in the course of climate intelligence. Um, it is getting very, very sophisticated, very high resolution. Um, it, it still has limitations. Um, it is costly to purchase it. And, and sort of frequent intervals. And um, it is um, the resolution in some cases is not necessarily sufficient to prove in the case of regenerative agriculture, the carbon sinks, but you could imagine taking pictures of forests and you can, yeah, you can kind of measure like how big those trees are and if somebody's cutting down forests or not. So, so there's ways that satellite imagery plays a really important role in this. And then in other cases, people are flying planes or like we said, drones over certain areas. If you wanted to get closer to the ground and a little bit higher resolution, then you would need to use a plane or a drone to capture this footage. But those are a few different ways to measure this. Um, and um, and folks are trying to figure out now like what combination, usually it will end up being like a an actual sampling if it's an, if it's an agricultural solution, a sampling of soil in combination with something at the plane or satellite level and the soil becomes sort of like the um, uh, tunes it, tunes the, uh, the what they're learning from the satellite models and sort of validates it um, 
excuse me, sorry, turn off my phone. I should have done that before. Um, but the, uh, the, yeah, you, a combination of those technologies is honestly the best because um, the earth science kind of the, the satellite and the geospatial solution is very scalable, but the soil sampling is very accurate. I know we're, we're coming up a little bit on time, but I, I have a, I have some things I really want to throw out there. You mentioned a lot of times in terms of the digital technologies. And, and in my experience, I worked in IoT and I worked in a lot of different IT sectors. And really, when we talked about digital technology, we talked about scale. So how can you take the, the technology and scale it? But there is a challenge within the energy industry, and that is that it's also regulatory and it's also geographically different. So, so how do you see this? As, as an opportunity or maybe even a challenge where you where you have a digital technology that might work very, very well in one country, but scaling it into other due to other factors that is really not technology driven. Is that a, do you see those as a challenge or is this just a temporary thing that could be changed? Well, I think that's a real important quality of these startups to know what their go-to-market strategy is and what geographies are the best ones to start with, because you've got to be able to focus initially on some geographies that are going to deliver enough revenue and growth as a business to allow you to become, you know, to scale up your solution and become successful and hopefully help you raise that next round of capital while other markets mature, you know, or adopt some of these solutions. And that's why we're seeing such great innovation coming out of Europe. You know, when you're looking at sort of carbon accounting, um, carbon offsets, uh, you know, risk measurement, there's a lot of great technologies in Europe because they've been um, developed alongside favorable regulations um, in some of the European countries. And now they're coming to the U.S. because they're finally seeing these signals, these market signals, that the U.S. will be a good market um, and that there will be a you know, good uptake here in the U.S. So that's that's an important consideration is that folks really understand sort of their market and their geography and that they don't get too caught up in being able to be everywhere. You don't have to be everywhere. You don't have to be global as a, as a young company. You really have to build a strong business to get yourself to a certain point that will become attractive for some other companies to help you go to to go the distance. And so it's very likely these companies will sell to a large incumbent over time who will help buy them because they've got revenues, they've got a solution that they want, and then they will help them go global. So you don't have to be global. You don't have to plan for world domination. You've got to be able to build a successful business. And in our case, you know, we're investing in companies when they have about a million dollars or so of revenue. And we're trying to get line of sight to them growing to $20 million of revenue. And when you hit $20 million of revenue, especially if it's recurring, as is the case with a lot of software companies and digital companies, um, then you are very attractive to larger players. So whether that's folks that will do very large financings or maybe will help you get to the stage where you can go public or other companies who really want to see this business become part of their own business. So, so that's what's most important is you've got to target your geographies very carefully so that you could see that path to growth. I think the advice you're giving is, is awesome. So there's, there's a number of people listening that I'm sure that have aspirations of having a tech startup um, or something in the energy space. Uh, unfortunately, we are at the top of the hour for our recording. So we're running out of time for the show. 
I, I was fascinated by the use of satellite and soil sensors and all that. that. That's just an amazing opportunity with basically COTS, what's on the shelf kind of technology that you can purpose to do something amazing. So that's exciting that you're finding uh, opportunities to invest in companies like that and that you can raise a fund and help bring that technology to market. So I really appreciate you joining us today. I've had a great time on this show. Uh, do you want to have any final th thoughts today? Do you want to share with the audience? I would just say that um, feel free to share my contact information with your viewers, because if anyone is out there and they have a cool idea for a climate tech solution, would love to hear about it. And as we said, we do invest in sort of these digital solutions. So um, if you have something that doesn't fit our thesis, we'll let you know right away. And um, if we can be at all helpful, we're happy to point you in a in a more productive direction. But, um, you know, I'm just I'm very inspired by the the amount of talent that's coming into this category. It absolutely does give me hope. And thank you, gentlemen, for giving me an opportunity to talk about um, Buoyant and to talk about climate tech. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, I, I hope we have you back in the future to hear more because I, I could go on for a long time. I'd love to hear about some other things coming up. Uh, for our audience, you've spent another hour listening to Insider's Guide to Energy. We love having you. If you enjoy the show as much as we do making it, please get your friends to subscribe. Hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, and share the content.